Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. Today, my guest is David Hunter. David is professor of philosophy at Toronto Metropolitan University, which is formerly known as Ryerson University. His research lies centrally in philosophy of mind, with special focus on belief, agency, and rationality. His new book has just been published with Oxford University Press. It's titled On Believing, Being Right in a World of Possibilities. According to many standard philosophical accounts, beliefs are a kind of stance one takes towards a proposition. To believe, for example, that Nashville is in Tennessee is to adopt an attitude of some sort towards the proposition Nashville is in Tennessee. Now, one advantage of this standard view is that it seems clear, or it seems to make clear, how beliefs can be right or wrong. To believe a proposition that's false is to have a false belief, while to believe a proposition that is true is to have a true belief. But in philosophy, things are never simple. And this kind of account occasions significant, in some cases, notorious difficulties. Given how central the phenomenon of believing is to everything we do, it may seem odd to say that belief is a real puzzle. But that's where we are. Now, in Unbelieving, David seeks to sort it all out. He presents a novel view of belief that stands in stark contrast with the standard view I just mentioned. On his view, and I'm quoting, to believe something is to be in a position to do, think, and feel things in light of a possibility whose obtaining would make one right. Now, that's a mouthful, but it's philosophically deeply intriguing. And so there's a lot to talk about, as there normally is. But before we get to all of the deep and intriguing details, let's begin, as we normally do, with our guest. Hi, David. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks. Uh, I really appreciate the chance to talk about my book. Great. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Um, we usually begin these uh, episodes with uh, the author saying a little bit about himself. Uh, so um, why don't you tell us a bit about you? Great. Um, so I started philosophy as an undergrad. I studied at uh, McGill University in Montreal. 
And um, I started university studying English lit, thinking I wanted to uh, be a literature professor. And I got excited by literary theory and then took a couple of philosophy classes and decided, wow, philosophers know how to do theory. So, you know, that was it after that. And um, I was lucky enough to be able to work with Charles Travis, who at the time was at McGill. Um, he was working on Wittgenstein at the time. So I spent a lot of time reading the investigations and uncertainty and books like that. Um, but I was also working with uh, James Tully and Charles uh, Taylor. So there was sort of the Hegel-Marx influence. Um, and some philosophy of action, I would guess. And some philosophy of action. Yeah. And then I got lucky. I went to MIT for my PhD. Um, so this is the late 80s, early 90s, a super exciting uh, time. Yeah. You know, everybody's thinking about externalism and philosophy of mind and Chomsky and linguistics. And so, and Frege, everybody was talking about Frege all the time. So it was a great time to be a grad student in Boston. Um, and uh, I worked with Bob Stalnaker. He was my primary supervisor. Um, and uh, at MIT, there's the option of writing three essays instead of a sort of standalone thesis. So I, I wrote a paper on Frege's views on definition, a paper on Burge and the analytic synthetic distinction, and a paper on uh, the semantic pragmatics distinction. Um, all kind of, you know, looking back now, I think, wow, you know, everything I've been thinking about since then is stuff I was thinking about then. You know, it, it's, it's a, there's a kind of continu continuity to it all. That's very satisfying. Um, and then I was lucky I got it. My first teaching job was in, uh, Buffalo at Buffalo state college, part of the SUNY system. And that was great because it's, um, it's a primarily undergraduate university, but it's a large one, like 13,000 students. And, uh, I learned so much philosophy in teaching, uh, way, you know, in some ways way more than I learned as a student. Um, and, and, you know, the challenge of trying to teach material clearly in a way that makes it exciting for the students. Um, so th that was a great place to start my career. And then I moved to, to Toronto in uh, 2006. And uh, it's a great department that I'm, I'm you know, Toronto is a great philosophy city. And uh, I just feel so lucky to be, you know, surrounded by, and I, I, I want to have a little quick shout out to two super good friends without whom I would never have finished the book. Um, Mark McCullough, who teaches at Guelph, and Sergio Tenenbaum at the University of Toronto. Um, just great supports, you know, throughout the whole process. So, Well, that's so, fabulous. That's about me. Well, great. Um, you know, I, I was a grad student in New York, <laughs> and uh, New York City, and, um, you know, having um, a large community of philosophers at different institutions, you know, CUNY, Columbia, New School, Fordham, um, even, you know, Rutgers was, was just a trade right away, um, sort of brought something to the colloquia and things where, you know, <laughs> you show up for a talk and uh, Philip Kitcher decided to show up that day. <laughs> and, you know, uh, it was just, um, you know, it was, uh, it was, just interesting to have just the sheer number of folks around and given the size just of the university of Toronto department. I mean, it just must be a wonderful place to, uh, to, to do philosophy. Um, but 
let's um, l- let's talk about the book. Um, and I want to begin, um, you know, at the very beginning. So the book leads um, with a really intriguing quotation from Elizabeth Anscombe. Um, and I want to just for the for the sake of our listeners, just uh, tell you the quote. You'll you'll recognize it. Uh, and um, I want to ask you to sort of just fill in some of the background uh, to the book. So Anscombe writes, quoting here, uh, belief is the most difficult of topics because it is so difficult to hold in view and correctly combine the psychological and logical aspects. Um. Again, that's that seems like there's a deep insight in there. I'm not exactly sure what it is. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the background and, and maybe you know why uh, why that 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 Anscombe quote uh, um, starts the book? Yeah, great. So, um, you know what a what a great quote, right? I mean, she's obviously yeah. learning from Wittgenstein how to put things in a in a mysterious but deep way at the same time. That's good. Now, yeah, you know. I don't think she's right that it's the most difficult topic in philosophy. There's a lot, you know, freedom, goodness, justice, those are all just as hard and, you know, maybe even more important than believing. But I think she's right about what makes belief an especially difficult topic. Um, and it's it's this that I think has sort of captured my attention, why I've spent so long thinking about it. Um, I, I think the topic brings together a lot of puzzling contrasts that seem deep but hard to pin down you know the the difference between the logical and the psychological between the objective and the subjective and between the inner and the outer um i mean on the one hand there's plainly something connected to logic about belief because beliefs got to be connected to truth when you believe something you're either right or wrong and whether you're right or wrong depends on how things are. And if you're wrong, then you could have been right. And so there's a connection to possibility. So, so that's kind of part of the logical aspect of believing. And it's, there's this traditional idea that the limits to belief, the limits to what a person can believe, are somehow tied in with the limits to possibility. And that's a pretty cool idea. And that this makes believing objective, that it's not just that being right or wrong depends on the facts. It's that what there is to believe has got to depend on the facts too. And that's a cool idea, I find. And and getting clear just on that idea is hard. I mean, I love the way Kant and Wittgenstein think there's something puzzling in trying to say what the limits are. Like there have to be limits to belief if belief's gonna be an objective matter. But if you try to say what the limits are, you're bound to fail. So I've always found that idea kind of appealing. So, but it's hard to make clear what that logical aspect of believing is. So that's one side that a lot. On the other hand, there's plainly something psychological about belief. I mean, we know that believing is connected to intentional action and to rationality. We explain why people do what they do on the basis of what they believe. And this connects up believing with subjectivity. There's something about uh, you know, my beliefs are my conception of the world, my take on the world, as you said. But getting clear on the psychological role just on its own is hard because when I do something on purpose, when I'm acting on my beliefs, 
it's not that the beliefs are pushing me around. I mean, that's not what it's like from the inside. They're not making me act. You know, it's tempting to say they incline without necessitating, but, you know, what does that come to? So, it, so it's hard just to make sense of the psychological all on its own. And then, you know, on the third hand, my beliefs are my conception of things. I'm, I know I have this conception and I know that it's my conception. I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, I go to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, you know, David, you've got high blood pressure and you've got some arthritis. Oh, and you've got some beliefs. Like that doesn't make any sense, right? There's something about having a conception that is essentially, I don't know, self-conscious or something. How can that be? So, you know, I guess what's always intrigued me about this topic is that it brings so much all rolled into one. And then just to top it all off, you know, I think that we're just natural beings, you know, the result of some sort of biological process. And how is it that beings like us can have states with those logical and psychological properties and know that we do? Um, so anyway, so I think that's at least my take on what Anscombe had in mind when she said it's so difficult to see clearly the logical and the psychological, and then to try to combine them in a coherent picture. Fabulous. Um, <laughs> lots of mysteries, um, which is always good, uh, keeps us in business. Um, uh, so uh, let's then, um, you know, l let's try to get the 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 core uh, view out. Um, you know, for our listeners, I want to say this is a this is a deeply ambitious book, um, and there's there's so much good philosophy in it. I, where the our discussion is really just going to scratch the surface. So, um, but I want to do at least that much. So, um, your view uh, is that. Um, Beliefs don't have propositions as their objects. So, at one point, you, uh, in a in a chapter, contrast your view, which you call the modal view, uh, with the um, uh, a more familiar view, the propositional account. Um, and you also hold that beliefs are not representations; they're not ways of picturing the world. Rather, you say um, to believe is to be in a certain position with respect to a possibility. So there are a few things going on. Uh, can you help disentangle and explain uh, what that means? Yeah, good. Thanks. Um, so maybe it's helpful if I sort of step back a bit and give a big overview and then mention some of the big ideas. Um, so I, I think of the book as having three big parts. The first four chapters or so are about the ontology of belief, what sort of thing a belief state is. And as you say, I try to develop a view that contrasts with standard ones. The middle two chapters are about the limits to belief, objective limits and subjective limits. And there I argue that, there are, that we, we're subject to a kind of illusion sometimes. Um, and I call them creedal illusions. And we also have some creedal necessities, things that each of us have to believe. And then, then the final two chapters of the book are about the ethics of belief, when we're responsible for believing what we do and uh, what it is for there to be something that we ought to believe. Um, so that's the big sort of plan of the book, three big parts. And here's some of the big ideas 
that I, I try to develop. The first one is that beliefs are states that a person is in, as opposed to states inside a person. And this picks up on uh, the question you asked about um, whether beliefs are relations to propositions or not. And I'll, I'll come back to that. But another big idea, again, one you mentioned, is that on my view, belief states are not representations. They're not true or false. So when I believe something, I'm right or wrong depending on how the world is. But my believing is not a kind of picturing. It's not a representation of things. A third big idea is that belief states are not causes. They're not causal powers. They're not causal dispositions. When, when I start believing something, that doesn't make a difference to what I can do or to what I'm liable to undergo. It makes a difference to what reasons I have for exercising the powers that I already have. And then another big idea is about the individuation of belief. So I say that the objects of belief are possibilities, not propositions. And I call my view the modal view. It's obviously similar in lots of ways to the idea that the objects of belief are sets of possible worlds, but I find it simpler, more elegant to talk about just straight up possibilities. So on my view, the limits to belief are the limits of the possible, that means that there are no more belief properties than there are possibilities. Now, we're familiar with all kinds of puzzling cases that Frege and others gave us, where it looks like people are confused or mistaken about which thing is which, or what stuff's what, or who, or where, or when they are. I agree that those cases are super puzzling. But I don't think they show that there's more to belief than there are possibilities. I think that they show that there's something about the limits to belief. Now, in the last two sections of the book, I, the last two chapters, I develop an account of inference where we become responsible for believing what we do. And I think of that in sort of, you're literally making up your mind. That's what makes us responsible. And then I'll come back at the end to talk about, about the ethics of belief. Um, right. So one of the big ideas is that Beliefs are states that a person is in, as opposed to states inside a person. One of the points I come back to many times in the book is that I think there's a traditional way philosophers have had of kind of hypostasizing beliefs, treating them as if they were little entities or objects. And we get that way back in the empiricist tradition, where we think of the mind is a kind of stream of consciousness with a bunch of things like floating by and, uh, you know, feelings and tickles and pains and aches. And then also desires and beliefs are little entities in my stream of consciousness. And it's so tempting to think of them as like little pictures. So I think um, this traditional view that hypostasizes beliefs, treats them as if they were pictures, um, really distorts uh, what it is to believe something. And just another shout out, Richard Floyd has got a book called The Non-Reificatory Approach to Belief. And I came across the book just as I was finishing up my book. And uh, it's a terrific discussion of this. Uh, uh, now, even though probably lots of philosophers nowadays would say, well, no, I mean, I, I'm not stuck on that empiricist idea of a stream of consciousness. I don't think beliefs as little objects. I think that that idea still has a kind of hold on us. So um, 
it's totally standard for people to say that beliefs are true or false. And it's pretty standard for people to say that beliefs are causes. And it's pretty standard for philosophers to say, you know, beliefs are the kind of things you can step back and reflect on, and you can kind of manage them or tend them, sort of as if they were flowers in a garden. I think all those ways of thinking of belief rely on the idea that beliefs are like little objects. And I think that um, distorts our understanding of belief. So my alternative is, uh, you know, in some ways, like Ryle, who also wanted to reject this reification of belief, and Dennett, um, but I want to do it without relying on a dispositional view like they have. So my slogan is that to believe something is to be in a certain sort of rational position. It's a, a in position to act in light of a possibility whose obtaining would make you right. And I find it helpful to start with a certain view about knowledge. It's a view that John Hyman developed that to know a given fact is to be in position to do, think, or feel things in light of it, where that fact can explain your actions, your intentional actions, and you know, changes in your feelings and, um, uh, and mental actions and attitudes, where the fact itself is what explains why you're doing what you do. That's what knowledge, it, knowing puts you in position to have those facts um, explain your actions. And I like that image, and I, 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 I sort of offer a slightly amended image that knowing is like being at home in the facts so that the facts are there to explain why we do what we do. And believing is a lot like knowing, except that, of course, with believing, you can be wrong. And you can believe without knowing because you don't have good enough evidence. So then, if knowing is like being at home among the facts, believing is like being at home among the possibilities, among the ways things are or could have been, where those possibilities can also shed light on what you do. You act in the light of those possibilities. Of course, when you believe something, you believe that the possibility obtains, so you take it to be a fact. So one of the things I try to do in the book is develop this theory of this account of how believing can explain. Okay, so the question you started with was um, uh, about truth and uh, aren't beliefs uh, true or false? Well, I don't want to deny that there's a deep connection between believing and truth, because if you believe something, then you're right or wrong. So if I believe that Biden is president, then I'm right because he is president. Um, so the believer is right or wrong. But in believing, I'm not representing the world. I'm not picturing the world as being a certain way. So I'm right or wrong. But it's not that my believing that Biden is president is true or false. That kind of sounds odd to me. Um, so um, an analogy that I rely on is uh, an analogy between uh, believing and having a certain mass. So, um, and this is an analogy that other people have relied on too, but even if they haven't quite drawn the conclusion from it that I want to draw. So say that I weigh 180 pounds. So I've got the property of weighing 180 pounds. That property is um, individuated by a number, the number 180. So I've got a property, it's a mass property, 
It's defined in terms of a number. And that number, being a number, has all kinds of arithmetical properties. You know, it's, a, a, it's an even number, and it's divisible by three and whatever. Um, but the property of weighing 180 pounds isn't even. It doesn't have that property. Um, even though that property is individuated by the number, it doesn't, as it were, inherit all the arithmetical properties. I think something exactly alike is happening with um, believing. So belief properties, like the property of believing that Biden is president, um, is individuated by, um, on my view, a possibility, on the standard view, by a proposition. But even if you think that a proposition is uh, true or false, it wouldn't follow that belief properties are true or false, or that my having a belief property is something that's true or false. So, right, so I don't want to deny any connection between uh, believing and truth because when you, believe, when you believe something, you're either right or wrong. But I want to put the believer back at the heart of the story instead of having the belief states at the heart of the story. And I keep coming back to this tendency among philosophers to treat beliefs as if they were objects. And that's sort of aided by a familiar ambiguity when we talk about beliefs between what a person believes and the fact that they believe it. And I think we go back and forth when we talk, when we use the word belief. Sometimes we have in mind, you know, what a person believes. And sometimes we have in mind, <clears throat> they're believing it. And, um, and sometimes we confuse the two. <laughs> and sometimes we confuse the two. It's, it's hard to keep track of these things. Yeah, that's and, right. That's right. Uh, absolutely. And, um, and, you know, on the standard view, for sure, uh, the objects of belief, the things people believe are propositions, and those are supposed to be, by their very nature, true or false. So it's so easy to slide back and forth and think that, that belief states must be, that my believing something must itself be like a little picture. Uh, so that's one, one of the big ideas uh, right. that I developed. Right. So um, just to get, this is a nice segue, because... Um, I want to hear more about um, what in the book you you you, um, uh, you you say it might be helpful to talk about belief properties, right? the, which is the the uh, um, uh, rather than talking about beliefs because we're trying to um, uh, release ourselves from an image that's holding us captive. Um, so uh, you say that belief properties are qualities rather than sortals. Um, can you tell us about that distinction and, 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 and how, um, seeing belief properties as qualities, um, helps uh, ex explicate the view? Yeah, good. Um, um, yeah. So on the standard view, I said that there's this kind of temptation to hypostasize beliefs or to treat them as if they were objects or entities of a certain kind. And I think that, um, uh, part of the temptation just comes from this ambiguity between thinking of belief as what a person believes and thinking of belief as um, uh, they're believing the thing. Um, but I think it also comes from not carefully distinguishing different kinds of properties that there are. And here I'm really developing work by Helen Stewart and Eric Marcus and uh, Anthony Kenny before them. So it's a distinction between two kinds of properties, between sortal properties 
and qualities. Um, on my view, uh, belief properties are qualities, not sortals. And this distinction recurs in different places in the book and ends up playing a big role at the end when I talk about the ethics of belief. Okay, so we've got this distinction, two kinds of properties, sortals versus qualities. So here are some examples of sortal properties, like being a chair, being a person, being a podcast, being a conversation, um, being human. And here are some examples of qualities, being tall, being rich, being in Toronto, being in Nashville. And the kind of slogan way to formulate the difference is that whereas quality properties are instantiated in individuals, the instantiation of a sortal is an individual. So the instantiation of the property of being a chair is itself a chair. Same for being a person, same for being human. But the instantiation of being tall isn't a tall. It's, you know, you, you, the qualities are instantiated in a thing in uh, that falls under a sortal. So I think that paying attention to this distinction can help us keep our focus on the believer rather than on the believing. Um, so a couple of logical things about sortals. So sortal properties come along with principles for individuating and re-identifying things. So you can count uh, if you've got a sortal property. So you can count the chairs in the room. You can count the people in the room. You can identify one chair as one and the same chair from a different time. It makes sense to say, well, there's this chair here, but is that the very same chair as was in this room earlier today? Or did Emily bring in a different chair? Um, it doesn't make any sense to ask how many talls there are in the room. You know, even though there's a property of being tall, you can't ask how many talls there are. You can't even ask how many tall things there are in the room because you need a more specific sortal than that. Like we can talk about how many tall glasses there are, or how many tall chairs, or how many tall people there are. Okay, so that's the difference between sortals and qualities. Belief properties, I think, are qualities. They're not sortals. And so take the property of believing that Biden is president. How many of those are there? How many do I have? Do I have just one property of believing that he's president? Why just, why just one? Is it contingent? C could I have had 10 believings that Biden is president? Might my brother have three of them, even though I've only got one? You know? <laughs> right. Um, I, I is, that, is the belief that Biden is president a different belief from the belief that he is the head executive or, or the person who won the right. election? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, yeah. Um, and I believe it now. And I believed it five minutes ago. And you, you know, is it one and the same believing or is it a distinct believing? Could it be that Emily swapped out my believing so that it's a distinct believing from, you know, none of those questions really kind of make sense. Um, in, in, in discussing this, Anthony Kenny put it in terms of senses of humor. And he asked whether it's possible that Oliver Cromwell might have had three senses of humor. You know, and the question points to a category mistake, right? It's just the wrong kind of thing to ask. Um, so I found that distinction super helpful in thinking about believing because it pushed me to stop thinking of belief states as if they were entities. They're rather um, 
states that a person is in instead of states inside a person. Um, now, there's an analogy that I like that helps me think th through this as well. Um, and it's an analogy between believing something and owning something. So, you know, we can count the things I own, like the books I've got. I've got lots and lots of books. You know, I don't know, maybe I've got a thousand books. So being a book is a sortal property because I can count the books. I can, you know, I've got a copy of Word and Object and I can ask, is it the very same copy as I had 10 years ago? And uh, so we can count the things I own. We can count the books. But then we ask, well, what about my ownings of the books? Is there one owning for each book? And so a thousand states of owning, or is there one state of owning a thousand books? I don't know how to answer that question. You know, and, and suppose, suppose somebody says, oh, well, that's one owning of a thousand books. Well, it, is that just contingent? I mean, could it have been that I, that while I have one state of owning a thousand books, my brother has 500 states of owning two, you know, and I, Again, I think that those questions don't make any sense. It's, it points to a kind of category mistake. So ownings are not entities in the way um, that books are entities. And that means that they're not going to have the same kinds of properties that uh, entities have. Um, okay, so one might wonder, well, you know, what's the big deal? Why worry about the difference between sortals and qualities? That looks like a kind of arcane uh, you know, super abstract, logical point, how can it shed any light on believing? Well, I guess it, I find it helpful because if we keep our eye on the difference between qualities and sortals and we keep our eye on the fact that belief properties are qualities and so then belief states are not entities, then we're not going to be so tempted to think that belief states must be like little pictures. And we're not going to be so tempted to think they must be causes because they're not the right kind of thing to be a cause. They're not even the right kind of thing to have causal powers. And then I think we're also going to be less tempted to think that they're the kind of things with built-in normative properties. Um, so that's the stuff at the end of the book. Right, um, right. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah good so let me um uh so the, the i think that um the sort of the, the the rough contours of of your account uh are, are are pretty clearly in view now um it might help though um to further uh further clarify the picture 
Uh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I shouldn't call it a picture. <laughs> to further go. clarify the account. Um, you know, so um, there are a couple of junctures in the book and you're laying out your view uh, where um, it's the view, the modal view is usefully contrasted with the propositional view. Um, so can we draw that contrast in, in, in somewhat sharper detail? I'm particularly interested in... Um, uh, hearing you talk a little bit about some of the uh, the the difficulties, maybe owing from from Frege and some Hillary Putnam stuff, uh, <laughs> that the propositional view uh, sort of raises, and how your view um, shows us how to deal with them or evade them. Uh, can you give us a little bit of that contrast? Yeah, good. So, um, so on my view, belief properties are individuated by possibilities. That means there are as many belief properties as there are possibilities, or at least no more belief properties than there are possibilities. And by a possibility, I just mean a way that um, things are or could have been. Um, I don't spend a lot of time talking about the metaphysics of modality. Um, I think that on on any view of belief, um, we're going to need to be able to make sense of modality. You know, in the early part of the analytic tradition, you know, Frege, Moore, Russell, people were more concerned about whether possibility was a, like a legit notion. And I think that partly explains why they moved to the idea that the objects of belief are propositions. I mean, that wasn't the only thing going on, but, um, but it became just the standard view uh, the objects of belief are propositions. And propositions, you know, sometimes people were sloppy and they thought of propositions as like sentences in a language. Sometimes they thought of them as abstract objects that have representational properties by their very nature. Um, now, in a way, I'm happy to talk about propositions as the objects of belief, so long as we limit the number of propositions there are to the number of possibilities there are. But the standard view says, oh, no, no, there are way more things to believe than there are possibilities. And that's revealed by these Frege puzzles. You know, um, the astronomer who, um, as she would put it, believes that Hesperus is not phosphorus or wonders whether Hesperus is not phosphorus. And, um, you know, uh, uh, the newspaper guy who's certain that Superman is not Clark Kent. And the uh, shopper in the in the supermarket who's sure that it's somebody else who's spilling the sugar, and then they suddenly discover, oh my gosh, I'm the one spilling the sugar. Right? <laughs> right. So you know we're familiar with all these puzzling cases, um, and they look like cases where somebody's unsure or mistaken about you know which objects are which, about identity conditions among objects, or about what stuff is what, you know whether water is H2O or not. And, um, and then these really puzzling first personal ones where it looks like a person might not know who they are in the world, even though, you know, in the most extreme kind of story that David Lewis sketches, there are these gods who are omniscient. They know everything there is to know about what world they're in, about what the facts are. And yet Lewis says one of them is kind of unsure who he is. And um, okay, so all these stories push people to the idea that um, there must be more to believe than there are possibilities, must be more belief properties 
and possibilities. So one thing I argue in the book is that these standard puzzle cases are not counterexamples to my view. So I do that by saying that for the cases to be a counterexample, they'd have to be a pure case. And what I mean by that is that they have to be a case where you have two people um, uh, who have different beliefs, but where there's no difference as to which possibilities would obtain if they were right. Because we want to, you know, if it's going to be a pure case, we want to hold the possibilities they take to be obtaining fixed and then identify a difference in what they believe. You know, just like if we wanted to show that shape and size are different, we'd have to get a pure case. We'd have to get two things with the same shape, but different size. If they have different shapes, then they're, they're not going to be a pure case that'll show that shape and size are different. So in these puzzling cases, the astronomy cases, the Hesperus phosphorus cases, I argue, they always involve a difference over um, which contingent possibilities obtain. So uh, the astronomer who says that she's not sure whether Hesperus is phosphorus, and me, we have disagreement about all kinds of contingent possibilities. So she thinks that there are more objects up in the heavens than I do. You know, she thinks there's two objects where I think there's just one. That's a disagreement about a contingent matter. She thinks her words Hesperus and Phosphorus don't name the same thing. I think they do. That's a difference over a contingent matter. So the Hesperus-Phosphorus case isn't a pure case. Since it's not a pure case, it doesn't really show that there's more to believe than there are possibilities. So, and then I, I make the same point for the first person cases, you know, um, the guy going through the shopping, through the supermarket, pushing the stroller, pushing the shopping cart, following a trail of sugar, convinced that, you know, sugar's spilling out of somebody's shopping cart. And then, you know, he goes up and down the aisles and suddenly he discovers, oh my gosh, I'm the one spilling the sugar. Um, so there's plainly a change in belief there. But it's not that it wasn't a change in belief over which contingent possibilities obtain. I mean, that guy thought there were at least two people in the store himself and somebody else whose shopping cart was spilling sugar. After he realized it was him, he changed his mind about how many people there are in the store. That's a change in uh, uh, a belief about which contingent possibilities obtain. Anyway, so I argue that none of these cases are counterexamples um, to what I call the modal view. It says that um, uh, there are no more belief properties than there are possibilities. But I also think that the standard view does a bad job of understanding what's puzzling about these cases. So the standard view says, oh, well, what these cases show is that there are way more propositions than you might have thought and they get super, super fine-grained. And in a way, what these standard explanations aim to do is to show that there's no disorder in that character's mind. That in a way, everything's fine because they've, they just believe a proposition. It happens to be a false one or maybe a necessarily false one. Um, but as it were, from the inside, everything's fine. I think that there's way more disorder 
and a way more interesting disorder in those cases than the standard view allows. In particular, I think that there's a kind of illusion that the person, that the character is suffering, an illusion that has to do with the limits of belief itself. And I find that super cool. So just quickly with, with the astronomer, you know, the astronomer who says, you know, I'm not so sure. You know, I, I think that Hesperus isn't phosphorus. And um, I'm trying to understand what she believes. And on her view, there are two objects up there where I think there's just one. And maybe one of those objects in the world, as she takes it to be, is, is Venus. But the other one can't be Venus because she thinks there's two of them. So what is that other object in the world as she takes it to be? Well, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's probably not one of the other heavenly bodies that she believes in. So it's like she thinks she's got hold of a possibility, but she hasn't. And when she sees that she was wrong, it's not like she can go back and say, oh, yeah, here's what I used to believe. I used to believe that Venus was not identical to itself. It's like, that's not what she used to believe. <laughs> He had a way more interesting belief that was wrong, right? Um, and after she corrects, we can identify the kind of belief she had, but we can't identify the specific possibility because there isn't one. So it's like it's a gap. You know, she thought she'd got, got hold of a way things are, could have been, and she was wrong about that. Um, so can, let me, can I just ask a question then? So um, uh, the astronomer, the, the community of astronomers living before the, um, the realization, I don't know if it's right to call it a discovery, that the morning star and the evening star are both the same, are, are the same planetary object, uh, Venus. Um on your view, are we led to say that those astronomers, um, what do we, 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 we don't say they had a false belief. We, we have to, we have to say they, they, they were under an illusion of some kind. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, can you tell us? So, so that, let me then put it as a question. So, we're on the cusp now of talking about what what I found a really really interesting discussion: the discussion of creedal illusions and necessities. Can we get into that? Because yeah. that was uh, thrilling to me and uh, yeah. philosophically thrilling. <laughs> good, good. I'm so glad because I find it so exciting. And uh, right, I, mean, I, I hope the excitement comes through in the book. It probably doesn't, but uh, um, yeah. So. Um, Definitely, the astronomers were wrong about some things. So in particular, they thought that there were two objects up in the sky. And they were wrong about that. And that's just a straightforward possibility because they could have been right, right? The world could have been such that the first light you see in the night sky aside from the moon and the last light you see up in the sky in the morning were different objects. It could have been that way. So in believing that, they had got hold of a real possibility. It just turns out that were, they were wrong about that. So that's just a straightforward mistake. Um, but of course, they didn't just think that more general thing. They also thought that they had got hold of a particular possibility, right? That this particular object was distinct from this other particular object. Um, and that's where the illusion comes in. 
it's kind of the same as when you're driving along the highway and you have a, a visual illusion. Um, you see what looks like a puddle up front. And, you know, it's hard to describe exactly how a person who's suffering a visual illusion takes the world to be. Because they're right about some things, but they're wrong about other things. And then there's a kind of a gap um, that's the illusion. So I think with illusions, there's always going to be surrounding beliefs, some of which are going to be true and some of which are going to be false. Um, so the person who's looking at down the road, they're right that, that there's a road up there. and um, uh, But they believe, as they would put it, that there's a puddle, um, a particular puddle. But there is no particular puddle. There's no puddle on the road at all. So it's not that they've got hold of a, of a, of a, of a possibility with concerning a real, actual puddle that it is ahead of them. There is no such possibility. Um, right? So in all these cases, but I, I guess my take on these cases is that what we ought to do in our philosophical account of them is not bring out how there's no disorder at all, but bring out what the disorder is. It's just part and parcel of these puzzling cases that they're puzzling. And, um, and I guess I also think that these puzzling cases are inevitable if believing is going to be an objective matter. So just as with perception, the reason we have perceptual illusions is because it's an objective matter what there is for us to see. And if it wasn't an objective matter, then there wouldn't be any illusions, right? It's got to be that the world fixes what there is for us to see. So there's a limit. And then illusions happen when you cross over the limit. It's exactly the same, it seems to me, with believing. If believing is going to be objective, then that means there's got to be limits to it. And that means it's bound to happen that we cross over those limits. Okay. Let me just, so, uh, so on twin earth, I don't believe that there's water in the pool. I'm under a kind of illusion that what's in the, I, I, I believe that there's colorless <laughs> tasteless liquid in the pool. Right. But it's a kind of illusion, uh, uh, that I'm under, uh, that leads me to say things like there's water in the pool. Is that right? Well, the, the twin earth cases, so there's so many different twin earth cases. So I'm not sure. Right, exactly. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> if we think about twin Bob, who just grew right. up on twin earth, then twin Bob um, believes that there's a colorless, odorless liquid in the lakes. And he also has a belief that he puts by saying, um, uh, water is wet or whatever. Um, now, the stuff in those lakes is stuff that we don't have around here. None of us has ever seen it, ever interacted with it. So, so far as I can see, we can't share the belief that he has. And he can't share the belief that we have. Now, we believe some things of the same kind, right? I believe that the stuff in my lakes and rivers is a colorless, odorless liquid. He believes the same thing about the stuff in his uh, lakes and rivers. But because you and I are in touch with this stuff, water, we can have beliefs about it that he can't have. Um, but sometimes when people tell these twin earth stories, they just say, oh, here's what twin Bob believes. He believes that, uh, that XYZ is wet. But if the lessons that Burge and Putnam want us to draw 
are right, then we can't have those beliefs that Twin Bob right. has, right? Yeah. Uh, so, um, can we? I want to make sure. So we're 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 we're, we're coming uh, around uh, an hour. So I want to make sure though that we get a chance to talk a little bit about the the sort of flip side of the creedal illusion stuff, which is the the creedal necessity part of uh, of the account. And I, I I want to try also to 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 give you an occasion to say a little bit about the norms of belief, the ethics of belief. Um, so why don't I just turn it over to you, right? So. Um, uh, Put those two things. Put put those topics together, and and, and tell us a little bit more about how the book uh, ends. Yeah, nice. So um, we were just discussing what I think of as the objective limits to belief. That is, the limits to belief are the limits of possibility itself, and sometimes we can cross over them. They're objective because they're shared by all of us, but there are also some subjective limits to belief. So. By subjective, I just mean that there are limits that are different for each person. And they constitute, I think, what's essentially subjective about believing. They, they make up what makes my believing my perspective on the world, as opposed to your perspective on the world. Um, but importantly, there's no privacy here. So I want to try to you know, <laughs> thread that needle, get some essential subjectivity without getting any essential privacy. So to do that, I introduced the idea of a creedal necessity. So something that um, I must believe, not in the ethical sense that I ought to believe it, but rather just in the sense that if I'm going to believe anything at all, I've got to believe these things. Um, so they're, they're necessities for me, things that I must believe. They're not necessities for you or for anybody else. You don't need to believe them, although you can believe them. Um, so um, among the creedal necessities are, um, you know, I have to believe that I exist. And I have to believe that I exist with the beliefs that I have. So it's part of my view that if you believe something, you believe that you believe it. And then you believe that you believe that you believe it all the way up. So I, I get that this is a, a puzzling and controversial part of my view, one of many. Um, I try to develop an account of implicit belief um, that I think goes some way towards making this a little less puzzling. Um, but it goes back to what I said at the start when we were talking about Anscombe and um, the difficulty she found in bringing together the logical and psychological. And I said, you know, there's on the third hand, my conception is my conception, and it's not something that, you know, it's something that I know from the inside. I know what I believe, right? So there's something I'm tempted to say essentially self-conscious, you know, super unhelpful word, right? Like I tell my students, never say self-conscious, never say subjective. And here I got a whole book where I talk about it all the time. <laughs> well, um, it's like a Kantian thought, right? I mean, yeah, I it's a think. Kind of Kantian yeah. thought, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, uh I think these subjective limits to belief can be understood um, without introducing essentially private beliefs by looking at um, essentially subjective limits. So things that I cannot revise away. In the final section of the book, final chapter, I talk about the ethics of belief and 
I know we're kind of running out of time, so I'll just give the, the quick sketch of the idea. Um, um, I think that it's best to start with the ethics of belief, not by thinking about what a person ought to believe, but by thinking about what they ought to know. I think that's the primary fact. And if you ought to know something, then you ought to believe it. But um, you only ought to believe what you ought to know. So it's ought to know that should take uh, primacy. Now, this runs against, um, I guess, the standard view that says that what a person ought to believe um, is somehow dependent or determined by the evidence they have or by what else they believe or by what they know or something. I think that kind of evidential approach um, isn't right. I think instead that what a person ought to believe flows from what they ought to know. Can, can I ask a, just a quick question there? Sure. Is, is the, the resistance to that more evidentialist sort of strand in the ethics of belief, is that just another sort of route into a representational beliefs or pictures uh, account? Is that, is, is, is that part of the resistance that if we think about the ethics of belief in that standard way, we're back yeah, I, uh, we're, we're back in that image, right? Yeah, good. If we think of beliefs as like little pictures, then we think of them as, well, aiming to be true. And then we think, you know, um, that there's got to be something, some kind of connection there that explains what it is a person ought to believe. Right? And, and so lots of theorists talk about belief as aiming at the truth. And then they say, well, I don't really mean that literally, but still the picture has got a hold on them. Um, other people who find the evidentialist view attractive think that, um, well, um, there are epistemic values, you know, in addition to moral values and maybe prudential values, there's also epistemic values. And what an ethics of belief should do is tell us how to maximize those epistemic values. And I'm not a fan of that either. I'm hoping to come up with an ethics of belief that doesn't talk about objective values like that. Um, so instead I focus on what a person should know. And I think we're, that's a like under investigated topic that is totally common in ordinary life. Like on the first day of class, I tell my students, you all should know the rules on academic misconduct and you should all know the dates of the assignments and exams. And I think I'm saying something true there about what they should know. And of course, in saying they should know it, I'm saying they should believe it. But it's not that I think they already have the evidence, and so they ought to believe those things because they already have lots of evidence. Like I know they don't have any. Like I know they don't even know that there are any rules on academic misconduct. Um, so, but so why is it that they should know them? That's because in order to be a good student, you should know what the rules on academic misconduct are. So, what a person should know follows from what they need to know in order to do the things they ought to do and to avoid doing the things they ought not to do. So I take this idea from Judy Thompson. Um, and then um, in the book, I go through and I argue that, um, I give cases, examples where a person um, um, ought to believe something, even if they don't yet have any evidence for it, where they have lots of evidence for something that they ought not to believe, or where they have lots of evidence for something that they're permitted but not required to believe. So I try to argue that there's really just no uh, connection between what a person ought to believe 
and what evidence they have. Now, I don't deny that whether a person is reasonable in believing something depends on what evidence they have. I mean, if you ought to believe something, then you ought to have evidence for it too. Um, yeah, so that's the, uh, that's the quick thumbnail sketch of the view on the ethics of belief. Well, um, David, we're, we're, we're just over an hour, which is fine. You've been in incredibly generous with your time. Uh, and I want to affirm, um, to our listeners that, uh, we've, we've only scratched the surface. Uh, this is, a um, uh, a, a philosophy book that, um, has, uh, there's a lot more content than the 200 odd pages that, <laughs> that, that it runs might suggest. So it's a, it's a, it's, 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 it's thick with philosophy and, and we've just, uh, we've just sketched it, but um, it's been, it's been really nice uh, talking to you on new books of, in philosophy about the book. Thank you for, for joining me. Well, thank you so much. Um, and thank you listeners uh, for joining us uh, for a discussion of David Hunter's new book with Oxford University Press. Once again, it is titled On Believing, Being Right in a World of Possibilities. It's a really fantastic book. Um, I encourage people to go out and, and check it out. Uh, thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.